Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the Song of Songs, otherwise known as the Song of Solomon. That's been our summer series, and today we're going to be concluding it. unfamiliar with where that is, it's right in between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament, the Song of Songs, chapter 8, and this morning we're going to be reading and then studying together verse 8 through 14. So Solomon here writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in chapter 8, verse 8. It's actually the, the others speaking first. They say, We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. And then the bride speaks, I, she says, was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was, in his eyes, as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. And then the husband, the groom, speaks. Verse 13, O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. And then the song of songs closes with the bride. She says to him, Make haste, my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Every time I come up here to stand in front of your people and the assembly you've gathered, it is a fresh reminder of how weak, inadequate, insufficient, even impotent I am. But you are strong. And so I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in an almighty and gracious way upon every heart that is here. May you be honored in the preaching of your word. Give us ears that are ready made by heaven to hear well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my bride, Jenny, 
has an abnormally sensitive palate. It may be one of her spiritual gifts. I don't know. But if we go to, say, uh, Chick-fil-A, she orders their famously sweet, sweet tea, she'll tell you, down to the last granule of sugar, whether it's been brewed to the perfection of sweetness or not. It's a blessing and a curse, really. That in this case, only a bit of sweetener can fix. And it is remarkable what a bit of sweetener can do, isn't it? Right? It can make something that's been bitter entirely sweet, and something that's entirely sweet, it can turn it into like a liquid cavity. I don't mind telling you, when it comes to our marriage, mine and Jenny's that is, however plainly imperfect it is, it's still been increasingly sweet over the course of 16 years. And I think I can say that the Song of Songs of the last eight weeks has made it all the sweeter still. Uh, it's pulled it into the liquid cavity category, down to the last granule of sugar. And I start this way simply to say this word of God, the Song of Songs, has been working in us. From week to week, we've taken it home and we've talked about it. We've let it create new conversations. Uh, we've tried our best to adopt its language, uh, its accent. We've applied its concepts. We've circled its sweet spots. And we've added them to the brew of our love. How has the song impacted you this summer, beloved? How has it challenged you to change? How has its focus on love and marriage and sex to the glory of God with all of its gospel branches along the way, how has that confronted your life? How has that maybe shifted the way that you view the world? How has it changed the way that you view relationships? How has it shaped and formed your heart to be more and more like Jesus? Right, let me remind us of what's said in a wisdom book of the New Testament James chapter 1, verse 22, how we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Christians aren't hearers who forget, but hearers and doers who act upon the word of God. And the song of songs, as much as any book in the Bible, is meant for blessed action. The whole Bible, I want you to hear, the whole Bible is vital for a whole Christian. That's why it's vital you get in a whole church that will envelop you in a whole Christ from all the Scriptures. That's the kind of church that we want to be for you. And our preaching the Song of Songs has been the latest effort in that direction. And the good news for any who have been away this summer is that our final text doesn't require any kind of catching up, really. In fact, I think we can count these last seven verses a kind of summary of the main ideas in the book. God glorifying purity until God glorifying matrimony. That's the Song of Songs. So here we go to our text and another push for the wisdom of purity. Last week, we left off at the most potent part of the poem. The bride 
entreating her groom, set me as the primary object of your love. Right? Let nothing come between you and me and this very flame of the Lord. That's what she said. It is sovereign. It's monogamous. It is unquenchable. It is priceless. Let it be so in the midst of our marriage. Let's huddle around this flame of the Lord and let the gospel shine forth from it radiantly. And then, our verse 8, where these others, probably the daughters of Jerusalem that have been in the book the whole time, they respond. And just so we're clear, it seems they're responding to all eight and a half chapters of the song so far, including this most recent and passionate entreaty, wife to husband. That is, they're responding to the poetic drama of Christian love that's been most richly specified in this marriage, and they're saying, we really want that for our little sister. And so a few things come to the fore for us. One, and I desperately want us to hear this, the Edenic love and marriage described in this book can be duplicated. It's not so ideal that it's out of reach from normal people. Or, if you're married, but off a ways from this kind of love, this kind of marriage, it's not irrecoverable. The song's given us an example that it's intended us to hope for, and pray for, and prepare for, and God willing, go on to enter, and then to imitate. So, if during our study of the song, you found yourself made low, a little discouraged, by the heights of their love, I just want you to hear that God loves to give grace to the things He loves. If you set your heart to have a marriage that is rich with the love of Christ, He will meet you in no matter how far you feel, you may have to travel to get back there. Don't despair. Okay? The love in the song, it's not a one-off. It's a lovely example for which to prepare. That's where we're going here. And so to another thing, and that is to holy accountability. We need to hear that in an age that talks mostly of rights and privileges instead of responsibilities and obligations... Accountability is a kind of curse word. But now, in the world of the Bible, accountability is a most blessed word. It's a gift. It's a kindness. It's love. And see that it's also here a force multiplier. Right? The, the Song of Songs, recall, is written by a repentant Solomon from the perspective, mainly, of a holy bride who by her heavenly purity and her heavenly matrimony is seeking to hold her younger peers accountable to the very same thing. And what we're seeing here then is the fruit of her labors. Not just in that they've received her wisdom for themselves, but that they now apparently want to pass that wisdom on along to others. It's disciples making disciples. That's what this passage is. It's a new bride 
caring enough to pass along her wisdom and godliness to girls who are coming into the age of love, and then it is those girls now caring enough to take action on behalf of at least one girl who is not as far along as they are. Dear ones, we are supposed to be about that deliberate disciple life. It itself disciples. It creates waves here literally through the ages, from one generation to the next generation, are we about that as a church? Ladies, wives, wives-to-be, have we taken up this very, very specific mantle, preparing girls and boys best we can to endure the purity cross, despising the cultural shame, for the matrimonial joy that is set before them. Or maybe first I just need to ask, do we believe in the beauty of holiness? Do we believe in fighting the good fight of faith in this way? Here's how one person might hold us accountable. Quote, Do you recognize and value the glory of purity? Do you really? Or are you of two minds on it? Do you value the purity of the spouse you hope to have while failing to value your own? Or that of others you won't marry? Do you value purity in actuality, but not in your imagination? In the way that you allow yourself to think? Can you apply your love for purity to those being flounced before you as enticements to sin? Does their dehumanization make you weep? Does it make you weep to live in a world, he asks, where people are attracted to the display of the defiling of people? That's pornography and other things. We're attracted to that. Do you celebrate the purity of the pure? Do you try to stymie the impurity of the impure? The song calls us to that. Close quote. Friends, uh, in our youth meeting this week, uh, in talking about the revealed will of God, we came across 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, which says, This is the will of God your sanctification. And specifically, that you abstain from sexual immorality, which it goes on then to equate with a kind of functional atheism. When a person gives their body, like this, to sin, it's like they don't know the God who gave them their bodies, full of divine dignity. So also in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus himself says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Think about that. They shall see God. Thus I conclude, purity to the very core of our being is a really, really big deal. 
and that we aid each other in it also then is a really, really big deal for life and apparently also for eternity. They shall see God. And listen, this accountability will absolutely be necessary. You know why? Because the age for love usually comes well in advance of the season for love. As one put it, we need accountability because passion is pleasurable and our bodies begin to tell us that before we're wise enough to know how to respond best to it. And at that point, we can either let our bodies define the boundaries or we can let Christ's body and Christ's word define the boundaries. So, these others here, applying the teaching of the song, state their aim to do this for this young girl. They say, verse 9, if she is a wall, we will build on her battlements of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar until, that is, her wedding day, the day, verse 8, that she is spoken for. So, this is about her virginity. Ladies, if you've missed it, don't dismiss it now. The song has heralded your bodies as Edens. As promised lands. As holy of holies. As foretastes of heaven. As a new world of the most distinguished and dignified set of beauties and delights for your husband. Don't you dare allow this world to set the agenda for you on what this ought to look like. Don't allow this world to degrade you by telling you you're something other than what you really are. They see their little sister's body as a galaxy of glories to guard until marriage. With a poem full of body garden imagery, we understand these additions, don't we? To be a wall is to be closed off. It's to be closed off to any and all suitors with untimely sexual solicitations in mind. If she's that, if she's all about fighting the good fight of faith, they'll do all they can to only further strengthen and further fortify her for the battles that lay ahead. But, what if she's a door? What if she's more or less inclined to swing that door wide open? What if instead of denying those garden-trampling foxes, she's more open to just letting them in? Well, we tried our best, but, you know, at the end of the day, she is who she is. No! <laughs> Stop it! If she's a door, they say, we're going to go get boards of cedar and we're going to nail that thing shut before it can be unhinged. We don't like that today. But God loves it. And that accountability, that protection, that enclosure, that discipleship is love taking God at His word. 
Again, it's believing the song and wanting the song for her. So many have had their garden trampled simply because no one cared enough to care for it when the owner of it, for whatever reason, could care less. And some of that has to be they just don't know the stakes. They just don't know the glories. They haven't known the Song of Songs. They haven't known who they are. They haven't known what they are. They haven't known what God desires for them. They haven't known that they're a garden of heavenly delights to be put on ice just for a little while so that they can be a fully stopped, pure fire kind of passion for a husband who is becoming of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps they haven't known such a purity can be done because sadly, tragically, they have not seen it done. And so see then how that is another peculiar glory of this bride. She now adds her accountability and her encouragement, picking up in verse 10. It's like she says, listen, y'all, I had it harder than your little sister, but I was nonetheless fortified all the way to marriage. Here's how she actually says it. I was a wall, not a door. I was a wall. And in the last but not least depiction of her body, my breasts, she says, were like towers. That's the last little giggle we can get out of the Song of Songs, okay? In other words, she had a lot more chest than little sister had. And with it, we might surmise the increased likelihood of attracting suitors to the door who had little but their own self-centered carnality at heart. And yet, she was not a door. There was no door to find at all at that time. Until marriage, for God's glory, her dignity, and their marital rapture, she was a wall, is what she says. You may remember back in chapter 4, she was a garden what? Locked. She was a fountain sealed. And therefore, She was a garden full of delights for her husband. And at the base of it all, as he's depicted for us over and over again, there was the radiance of her Christ-like character. Neither her God-given curves, nor those who courted them and them alone at the end of the day held any sway over her soul's commitment to glorify God with this body. In some, she remained a truest kind of virgin, not just a virgin in name only, but a truest kind of virgin through her maturity all the way to her matrimony, her marriage. And then, She says, I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. And peace is a further motive to purity, isn't it? As one who regularly talks with sexually broken people, young, old, singles, spouses, I'll tell you, 
The temporary pleasures of impurity breed no lasting peace. Especially for, though not limited to, the Christian heart. There's not peace there. There's guilt. There's not peace there. There's regret. There's not peace there. There's discord. There's discord with self. There's discord with a spouse. There's discord with others. There's discord with God. But I want to tell you something else. I have never known a sound Christian to regret their purity. To despise the dignity, the full lot of delights, the peace that they brought into their marriage. As one put it, purity breeds peace. And she might also mean that she was able to eventually, at the right time, lay her virginity aside peaceably because of the wonder-working union, this thing we call marriage. She and he had fought that good fight of faith until that faith, so to speak, became sight. Wedding night. They got married. And in that way, sexual intimacy became good. It became holy, even, for them. It was justified and it was sanctified. There is a time for the wall to come down. There is an open season for the door into that garden. There is a calendric moment for love's peaceable consummation. And that is when, before God, sinners say, I do. Purity lends itself to peace. But she's not done. On the way out, she wants to remind us, if we need still more ammo for that good fight of faith, that no amount of illicit intimacy can compare with the value and the joy of covenantal intimacy between Christ-radiating husband and wife. That's verses 11 and 12. The repenting author of the song refers to himself through her. She says about him, one of his vineyards yielded him 200,000 pieces of silver. We have mathematicians in here. You can look at those verses and try to figure that out. I think that's right. 200,000 pieces of silver, and he had 1,000 vineyards. I got all that from one, he had 1,000. But the point then centers on the first words of verse 12. She says, my vineyard, my very own, is before me. As if to say, the one I have produces more than all Solomon had. And I think she's talking about more than a literal vineyard. You remember chapter 1, verse 6? She doesn't own a literal vineyard. But she does own a kind of vineyard. One, remember, she had not kept because she was laboring so hard in those other literal vineyards. What's the vineyard? It's, it's her body. That's the vineyard. And I think the same play on words at the beginning of the song then is present here at the end of it. And to add to that, how many wives and concubines did the historical Solomon have? Do you remember? That's right, a thousand. So when she says, verse 12, my vineyard, 
My very own is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand. I think she's just adding punch to her point. It's a poetic double entendre. Okay? It's not about her having an enviable contentment when it comes to material wealth. It is about love and marriage and sex to the glory of God. It's that her intimacy, listen, it's that her intimacy with her one man is more than Solomon's 1,001 night stands. Do you believe that? All that the whole world can offer the greatest king in terms of erotic pleasure does not compare with the righteous romance experienced between this bride and her groom. That is the song of songs. Many is not more than monogamy. Impurity is not more than purity. Playing the long game in view of Edenic love and marriage, it pays off bigly. Way more than anything Solomon ever had. Thus saith the Lord. Who made you. And sustains you. And knows you. And loves you all the way to the cross and back. He's not going to tell you something stupid. I feel like I need to add this here for those of us who grew up in church and in the purity culture of my high school and college days. This in the song is not that. It's not the same thing. That sought to motivate purity by fear by ostracization, by calling sex and certain desires dirty and all this kind of thing. But this is not that. The song given us by God seeks to motivate purity by exciting the sinful mess out of us. By showing us the beauty of romantic passion and pleasure done God's way. The song is a purity manual. We understand this, right? The song is a purity manual for young girls, ages probably 10 to 15. And it is filled from beginning to end with love, intimacy, and sex to the glory of God. How can that be? Or better, why must that be? It must be because what our souls need for sexual purity what our souls need for delaying gratification until marriage is certainly not the church's sinful silence on the subject, but a better, truer, richer vision of sex than the world's dehumanizing spinoffs. In the song, I want you to hear, sex just means more. We don't need to hide these things. We need to showcase them according to the Word of God. God's designs, simply put, are always better than Satan's designs. Period. In a me-first, mine-now society, souls need a vision of romantic pleasure that is more compelling 
than the cheap satisfactions of immediacy. It needs the marriage that we've seen in the song. It needs the spectacle that holds maybe not the world's eyes, but certainly God's. It needs Edenic love to be put on full display. One of my favorite lines, not in the song, but from one of the commentators that I read over the course of this study, is just this. When, when the world around us is saying, oh, Christians don't like to have uh, any kind of pleasure, certainly not like that, he just responds, no, it's not that at all. What it is is this. Christians want people, want souls, to have the most pleasure with the least amount of regret. The most pleasure with the least amount of regret. Okay? So there's the final push for the wisdom of purity. How about, we'll be briefer here, the final call to the world of consummation. If you've been with us over the course of the summer, perhaps you feel this more, but how fitting is it that the song ends with husband and wife. This exchange in verses 13 and 14 between he and she. So let's begin with he. Par for the course, he begins with her. So beautiful. He has eyes only for her, desires to be alone with her, uses his words, ah, that mouth most sweet, to commend her. He calls to her as one who, we can't miss this, one who dwells in gardens with companions listening for her voice. The bride is the wise sage in the poem. It's like she has a class of disciples here sitting at her feet in a garden world. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Okay? A garden world. And we can almost now hear her instruction, can't we? Now, girls, listen. You see the beauty of this garden? Remember now, you're like that. You're like this. You're beautiful. Like this garden. Protect it. Protect it. Preserve its promises. Be a wall. Or, if you must, get someone to help you board the door. You hold the key, chapter 4. You hold the key. Don't hand it over to just anybody. If you're going to hand it over, hand it over to some Christ figure <laughs> who's going to hand over his life to love you well. Love you with that Romane Conti love, putting his vows to his virtues. Until then, girls, do not stir up or awaken love. Let your heart, your body, your affections, your marriage be truly Edenic. Like me, dwell in gardens. Let its springtime instruct you in the good fight of faith, about faith and hope and love. So, as needed, some of us might just need to go out this week to the botanical gardens and be reminded of some things. But at any rate, it's like she is a new Eve in a new Eden, which would make him a new Adam. Here we go. Losing you here. Who longs to walk with his bride in that Eden in the cool of the day. 
So in the midst of her discipling, he longs. Let me hear your voice again. Let me be in your presence as a husband with his wife. And verse 14, you see there that she obliges that. There's no myrrh needed this time. Her door is open to him. And as she should, she gets the last word. And what a word it is. Make haste, my beloved. (laughs) And be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. It's another, another invitation to their well-established intimacy. So, class is dismissed. (laughs) And the way is paved for them to be together in this way. The song ends on a note of relational springtime and the proven expectation of love's consummation in the Eden that they have made with each other. Talk about no burnout, right? One commentator just asked, he says, he says will they ever give it a break? <laughs> I just will tell you, it is hard to do when you never give such love. Healthy marriages will tend to lead to healthy marriage beds. And these two, I think we can say, were really, really healthy. From start to finish, they could hardly stand to be apart. And that's meant to preach spouses. It doesn't have to grow cold. Don't let it grow cold. From start to finish, labor this kind of love. For the sake of the gospel, do all you can to keep that golden ball of pure fire desire, that very flame of the Lord, do everything you can to keep it smoldering in there. There should be a trajectory in our marriages. And it should not be, hello darkness, my old friend. It shouldn't be Greenland, where it's icy and cold and not green. It should be promised land. It should be to warmer and warmer displays of divine love, gracious union, and gospel light. Unbelieving friend, we see you. We rejoice that you're with us. We'd rejoice even more if you join us by believing in Jesus. He left his Father's throne above. So free, so infinite His grace. Emptied Himself in wondrous love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? The love in the song is ultimately about the love that stands to save Sinners like you and me. It's about the last Adam, Jesus, coming into this wilderness and remaining universally pure across the board, perfectly obedient to God, only to give up His life on the cross, atone for our sins, be laid in a tomb. Where was that tomb? In a garden. 
and then rise from the dead. That you might have eternity in a garden city to be with the lover of your soul. Won't you receive such love today? And we pray you will. And that if you do, you'll come and let us know about it. Don't be shy. We will be happy. Okay. Beloved, the song is a song of repentance and faith. It's Solomon confessing his sins with a desire to lead us in a better way. And as we need to join him in that, I would just say, let's do it. Let's repent of all the ways that we've gone contrary to God's good designs for human love, marriage, and intimacy. And let's begin to walk afresh with Him in these things. And at the same time, I also always want us to hear this. Jesus is the very best husband. He's the great bridegroom. As you take it into the New Testament. He's the great bridegroom who patiently, perseveringly, and perfectly loves us, though it is far too often in spite of us. Dear ones, He's died for us. And He lives for us. He's forgiven us, and He's covered us. Though we sin, we are always His bride, His dove, His beloved, His perfect one. He's covered us. And He sustains us with a mouth truly most sweet. He's given us every reason to believe that we will not fall short of the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, it's interesting, however unoriginal to me, to see precisely how the song ends. It's strange, really. In a book with multiple accounts of marital consummation, how does it end? It ends only with the expectation of consummation. He wants to be with her. Let me hear your voice. She bids him make haste. But we are not given to see that final act of consummation. Why not? Well, it's thought, I think rightly, that it's because we, like Solomon, though more advanced in the promises of God, live in the hope of that perfect marriage being consummated at last. We are waiting. And while we wait as a bride, why not take our cues from the bride? And how about from her first and last words of the song? So long as we live, Draw me after you, Jesus. Let us run. And make haste, my beloved. Come, Lord Jesus. Help us run after you. Help us run to you, even as you come quickly to us. Two months ago, we talked of a story of never more woe than that of Juliet and her Romeo. Today, as we go, 
my prayer by the Song of Songs is that our purity and our matrimony will tell a very, very, very different story. A true story, in fact, of love divine all the way down to the last everlasting granule of sugar. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. (laughs) But we're so weak in it. Yet you are perfect in it. So help us to have a sense in our own hearts of the perfection of your love for us. And man, may it just have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, full reign with our hearts and our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name, thanking you for your word. Amen. Thank you.